coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. The tragedy in our low salt obsession is that the more and more you cut salt in the diet, the higher the insulin gets because insulin is a water retaining hormone and a salt retaining mm. hormone. And because salt is a molecule that is so essential for life, as you start cutting it in your diet, well, then the body becomes all the more desperate to hold on to what it's got. And so insulin climbs in order to try to keep that in. And as insulin stays high, you become insulin resistant. There are actual human clinical interventional studies that have proven this. So this isn't even correlation slash coincidence. This is causality. The more someone is cutting salt, the more likely that they are becoming more and more insulin resistant. Ironically, all in an effort to try to hold on to the salt that they do have. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed metabolic and diabetes scientist and the author of Why We Get Sick, Dr. Ben Beekman. We discussed the role of insulin in the body, calories versus insulin, how to break a fast, the importance of salt in the diet, and fermenting foods for health. This was a great interview with Dr. Ben. I've been wanting to get him on the podcast for a long time, and I really enjoyed it. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the interview. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have a special guest, Dr. Ben Bickman. Welcome to the show. Hey, brother. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Glad we could get together. I've heard you on a bunch of different podcasts. I'm like, God, he's, he's a lot smarter than me. I got to get him on. <laughs> oh, no, no, listen, hey, let's just start this right off. Um, what, I, what I really, in all, in all sincerity, um, there's a difference, of course, and you know this, and you're just being self-deprecating, but you know, just kind of intellect and smarts versus just, this is a guy who's just spent a lot of time <laughs> becoming familiar with a certain topic. You know what I mean? Right. I don't think people with PhDs, they're no smarter than anybody else. They just found a topic they cared enough to devote an, an ungodly amount of time to understanding. That's the only difference. Because you ask me about your car. I don't know. You know, well, I'm, I'm the dimwit. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, like anything, if you want to be really good at it, you got to almost obsess about it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I obsess about golf. So that's a whole nother thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> and my view on golf is I'll do it when I'm too old to do anything else. So right. <laughs> yeah. you know what though? You got to start a little bit early. So you get, the, Oh no, you... I know. I know. <laughs> I will. I will. Okay. Uh, awesome. Well, we're going to, I got a bunch of different ideas regarding topics we can talk about. Maybe before we get into that, just give the audience just a, maybe a short background of of, uh, you know, I, I know on your Facebook page, you say you're a diabetes and obesity scientist, which is pretty, pretty cool. Maybe give them a little background of, of, of your, um, um, yeah, your, your, your teacher and author. I also have your book here, why we get sick. So we'll talk oh, about nice. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you kind of, that's a pretty thorough introduction. I am a research scientist. So publishing uh, scientist, you know, conducting research in my lab all the time. Um, even today, um, doing some experiments looking at how fat cells express different levels of thyroid hormone receptor and how that influences the metabolic rate in fat cells. Um, nothing to publish on that yet. Um, but yeah, so active researcher, publishing and presenting. I'm also a, a professor in the sense that I teach classes. I have an undergraduate assignment 
where I teach undergraduate students about the body when it gets sick, like diabetes, for example. And then I have a graduate course that I teach about endocrinology, so the study of hormones, which is perfect for me because I study hormones um, in my lab. And so it's fun for me to be able to teach that topic. I'm very kind of on the nose. Um, and then, of course, outside of the classroom and the lab, I am a husband and father, and that means more than anything else. Yeah. And what got you interested in, you know, just, you know, I know you talk a lot about insulin resistance and hormones in general. What, what sort of uh, got you uh, interested in all that? Oh yeah. It all started with insulin and that it all started with the fat cell. Uh, I will, I will, I will not forget the moment where I was getting a master's degree in exercise science. And I, I knew I wanted to do uh, pursue academia and become a scientist and a, a scientist and a professor, but I, you know, I was still learning um, what I wanted to do and, and what I would become in that regard, professionally speaking. And then I stumbled upon a paper that had been published just a couple years prior. So this is early 2000s. The paper was published late 90s, which detailed how fat cells, when they got big, started to secrete pro-inflammatory proteins called cytokines. And that starts to started to promote an inflammatory profile in the body, which then caused this condition called insulin resistance, which I wasn't familiar with, but that was thought to be the link um, at the time. And it still is thought to be a link connecting weight gain to type two diabetes. So that was the beginning of it all very humble, almost accidental origins. And then I couldn't get insulin resistance and inflammation out of my mind. Uh, and then I, I pursued that very deliberately with my with my PhD work, my dissertation, um, looking at changes in inflammation and insulin sensitivity in people who were overweight, obese, who had gastric bypass surgeries, and then more, um, again, more intent, deliberate focus on this topic with inflammation and insulin resistance during my postdoctoral fellowship. And then when I started to run my own lab here at BYU uh, 11 years ago, the theme continued. Yeah, interesting. I've, I've always been intrigued as well, not maybe quite on the same level as you with insulin and its role in the body. Maybe talk, talk to our audience a little bit about, I mean, I mean, we could probably spend an hour about all its different roles that it plays, but perhaps what, what it has to do with, you know, just with fat loss and things that could affect, you know, every people on an everyday basis. Yeah. Yeah. So insulin is a hormone of, uh, for life, uh, of life rather, right. you, you must have it or you'll die. And the relevance of insulin is reflected in the fact that literally every single cell of the body has insulin receptors. In other words, every cell has these little pockets that just insulin will come and bind and then tell the cell to do something. Now, it's no surprise because there's such a variety of cells in the body that insulin will tell different cells to do different things. The most famous thing that it tells cells to do is to take in glucose. Some cells will respond to insulin like muscle cells by opening doors for glucose to come in and thereby lower blood glucose. But uh, at fat cells, in addition to stimulating glucose uptake, which the fat cell will use to turn into fat, um, it will also very powerfully block the inhibition of fat breakdown. But that first point, Brian, is relevant. There are people I've seen in, uh, in the kind of social media space that will say fat cells don't turn glucose to fat. That is absolutely false. Glucose alone 
just glucose alone is capable of activating the enzymatic machinery to, to turn on the, pat, the, the biochemical pathway to make fat from, from just scratch carbons, like from glucose. Not even insulin, but just glucose alone provides that signal. And, and so we have to put that myth uh, to bed. Um, glucose is absolutely a molecule that a fat cell will use to build fat molecules. So in other words, to turn it into fat. But again, at the same time, insulin is powerfully inhibiting the breakdown of that fat. And so, but it's not as much stimulating the uptake of fat. That's important that the uptake of fat is something that doesn't require insulin's involvement. Unlike the uptake of glucose, if a fat cell is pulling in glucose, insulin tells it to do that. That's mm -hmm. necessary. But with regards to the fat alone, insulin's blocking the breakdown of that fat. And so the net effect of this is while the fat cell continues to take in fat without insulin even telling it to, what, what it starts to grow because insulin's blocking the breakdown of the fat, not to mention inducing the synthesis of new fat in the form of, of turning glucose into fat. Now, um, a little bit off that point is, you know, there's a there's sort of two arguments. There's probably more than just two, but there's sort of two sides of it. You know, you have sort of maybe an old school approach, maybe some new school is like, you know, it's all about calories. Um, and, and then other people are like, well, no, it has to do with, um, you know, insulin and, um, yeah. and its ability to, you know, obviously, um, not spike as much and as often as it should. Um, I'm, I've always been more, I've never counted calories my whole life. It's I've, I just sort of go off intuition, try to eat till I'm full, you know, till I'm satisfied and move on. And I can sort of just, you know, until I've always been on the insulin side, but I'm just curious, um, mm -hmm. uh, what's your thoughts? I know which side maybe you sit on, but it might, probably is a combination of both. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. It is. Absolutely. <clears throat> I have a, I have a, uh, I think a particular, um, uh, particularly qualified and perhaps unique view on this because m my PhD was uh, uh, on a topic or a degree in bioenergetics, which is the study of energy in cells. And calories are the unit of energy. We call it a, a calorie, but it's a way right. of just uh, quantifying energy. Um, so I have a unique appreciation for energy use and even the laws of thermodynamics. And so I am um, deliberate in saying this. I think, in, I think giving food a caloric value is one of the greatest mistakes we ever made in the realm of human nutrition and Who our did understanding. That? Who did that? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So it was scientists in the early, I think, late 1800s, I guess. Um, I'm sure they thought they were doing them uh, a favor. Right. Um, and there's something to be said for just knowledge, but then trying to apply that to the human organism as if we are uh, a perfect thermodynamic uh, machine. Um if we were, if our bodies represented the entirety of energy in the universe, then it would make sense mm -hmm. um, because then you can perfectly capture and quantify and account for every unit of energy. We are not. We are what's called an open system. And thus, the laws of thermodynamics simply cannot be applied to the organism, to, to a living organism. I think it is a travesty of science that it was ever invoked in the first place and that it continues to be invoked. Now, having said this, <laughs> I'm not saying energy doesn't matter. Energy does matter. But 
our obsessive focus on energy has caused us to totally overlook the relevance of hormones because hormones, especially insulin, are what tell the body, the cells of the body, what to do with the energy that it has. Case in point, right across the hallway is my laboratory where we literally right now have fat cells growing in a little Petri dish. Brian, I can, into that little soupy mix of for the cells to grow, I can have ample calories from glucose and fatty acids and the fat or triglycerides. Um, the fat cells won't grow at all. They'll just stay these little kind of stubby, dark little cells until we spike insulin into the culture, into that little bath. Mm. At the moment we put insulin in day after day after day, we can start to detect a, a fat droplets within and they get these, they become these big bubbly fat cells. Like you think of fat cells, it cannot happen unless insulin is elevated. It's impossible. So a cell needs to be told what to do with energy. And, and there's so much I could say on this and, and maybe I'll just leave it at that for the sake of time that energy matters. Absolutely. But if we aren't accounting for calorie uh, for hormones, then we are not counting the energy appropriately. Right. Right. Well said. Well said. And I know you talked on a recent podcast about a study that was done. I thought it was really cool. Maybe you can touch on that is where they, uh, regarding low carb and a higher carb and they kept everything else the same. Right. Um, and the individual, uh, the metabolic rate actually was better on a low, on a mm -hmm. lower carb, uh, diet. Is that right? Oh yeah. 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 In fact, that's right. Yeah. So yeah. this even happens in non-diabetic humans. Um, and multiple groups have shown this now that if a human is eating a diet that is um, very low in refined carbs and thus insulin is low, their metabolic rate will be anywhere from 100 to 300 calories a day higher without doing anything else. It's not like they're exercising. They're not on the stair stepper for an extra hour. Mm -hmm. Just metabolic rate is that much higher. Mm -hmm. um, the most dramatic example of this is seen in type 1 diabetics. We've known for over 100 years that when insulin is low, like in the case of type one diabetes, metabolic rate is significantly higher than it should be based on the body size. And then the moment you start giving the person insulin, this was studies done in the, in the eighties, more recently, the moment you start giving them insulin, metabolic rate slows to where you'd expect. And that happens in type one diabetes where it's quite dramatic because it goes from no insulin to a lot, you know, abundant insulin. Mm -hmm. But even in the case of type two diabetes, which is already elevated insulin, you give them insulin therapy, metabolic rate slows from the moment you start the insulin therapy. And insulin is so determined to store energy that it will slow the metabolic rate to make energy storage even easier. Wow. And uh, I know Dr. Jason Fung, I, I think that was one of the first books I read is Obesity Code. And he talks a lot about that and how he started treating people you know, who are type two diabetic uh, with fasting. What are your thoughts mm -hmm. around implementing fasting? You know, it's something that we, I talk of quite a bit about on the podcast. Um, and what are your thoughts around that for individuals to implement on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I think it's genius. Um, I, I think Jason, Jason ought to be credited. And I, I appreciate that you're bringing him up because he is really the godfather of the modern interest in fasting. Um, I think fasting needs to be um, used, uh, and, but also used um, carefully because I think Sometimes in some people, fasting becomes a binge purge cycle. 
where they fast, they get super hungry, and then they binge and eat all kinds of garbage. They, they overeat. They feel full and uncomfortable. They have shame. They regret it. They resolve to do better the next day, and they do the exact same thing. So with I'm a huge advocate of fasting, but I think that how a person breaks the fast is more important than how long they go. In other words, the food they eat at the end of their fast matters much more than how long the fast goes. Now, I don't know that Jason agrees with that. I wouldn't be surprised if he does, um, but that's kind of my own view of the, uh, on the matter. Yeah. Well, on, on that topic, let's talk a little about breaking a fast and um, what, what are the type of foods that you would recommend someone? Uh, you know, I, I think obviously if you're doing a longer fast, it probably plays more of a role. If you're doing it every day and you're sort of used to it, obviously the foods you eat are, do play a role, but if, especially if you're doing a prolonged fast, breaking it correctly is really important. Um, what are the type of, yeah. yeah. What are some of the foods that, um, and I know you mentioned some of them in your book, are you just looking, is the main thing that you're looking at is like glycemic load and things like that and how it affects you? Yeah. So I, I, I sometimes worry that I'm too boring, that I'm too one dimensional <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm the guy with the hammer and I see insulin as the nail everywhere. So I'm just hitting it all the time. But my view on it is the, that the value of fasting, well, would be manifold. There would be multiple benefits, but one of them would be uh, that, that you lower insulin and that when insulin comes down, you are mobilizing fat and burning it. Uh, there's no question about that. And that's why you're making ketones because you're burning fat so much. Uh, but you're also activating autophagy. As much as people are obsessed with autophagy nowadays, and I think that's appropriate. Autophagy does appear to be very beneficial mm -hmm. and even necessary for a lot of the benefits of fasting. Um, then you got to lower insulin. If insulin is elevated, you cannot activate autophagy. Insulin will stop that process because it's energy wasting and insulin doesn't like to waste energy. Mm -hmm. And so my view on it is when you break the fast, keep that going um, and, and keep that insulin down and go transition from a kind of true classic caloric fast when you're not eating or drinking calories. And then when you're breaking that, have you uh, move your body into what I like to refer to as a nutritional fast, which is now you're eating, you're getting nutrients, but because you're scrutinizing the carbohydrates and focusing more on proteins and fats, the insulin effect is much more modest and you can continue to get some of the benefits of the fasting. What are your thoughts on fructose? Yeah, yes. Um, <laughs> I'm not an advocate of, well... <clears throat> I certainly not an advocate of how most people are getting fructose, which is, you know, they're drinking it in juices and right. they're getting it from lots of sugar. Um, I know that they're within the community, uh, low carb community, a lot of um, prominent voices are advocating honey. I, I'm, I don't know. I, I'm not overtly opposed to that. Um, uh, honey is a mix of glucose and fructose, kind of like sugar is, but of course it's very natural. Mm -hmm. And if it's, if it's not pasteurized, I think it can have a lot of benefits like with antibodies and enhancing immunity in people. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also don't think that people need to be trying to get honey in their diet. Um, fructose, although that's not what you asked me about, uh, too much fructose will absolutely promote fatty liver disease. Fructose also increases cortisol sensitivity in fat cells, hmm. um, which can result in more fat storage on the visceral or truncal space of the body. Um, not to mention that fructose metabolism increases uric acid, which can increase gout. So I'm not an advocate of, of a certainly refined fructose. And maybe if the fructose were coming in the form of, you know, infrequent honey, well, then, you know, I, I can't really be opposed to that. An occasional maybe fruit, like are you totally anti-fruit? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure, sure. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. So a, my view on fruit is 
Um, uh, my view on diet overall, the first rule for me is control carbohydrates. And generally what I mean by that is don't get your carbs from bags and boxes with barcodes, but rather fruits and vegetables. And if you're eating them, not drinking them, then essentially that's something you can enjoy ad libitum. There's really no, re in my mind, unless you're a type two diabetic trying to get off your drugs, then you got to be much more thorough and strict. But for the average person who's not type two diabetic and doesn't want to be, then basically fruits and vegetables are fine by my estimation. Do you prioritize protein when you have? Yeah. Your meals? Yeah. So that's rule number two for me. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah, the first one is control carbs and then prioritize protein. But it's interesting, Brian, because when I first joined the low-carb space, if you will, the social media space, there was absolutely a fear of protein. Right. And in fact, that was so interesting to me um, that I devoted some time to it and gave a talk at Low Carb Breckenridge years ago, looking at protein and helping people understand, one, that it has a modest effect on insulin itself. And two, it's usually coupled with an equal or even greater effect of glucagon. And I was, I, I think, kind of the one who brought glucagon into the conversation here, which offsets what insulin's doing. Um, but as pleased as I am that protein is no longer vilified, I, I wonder at how far we've swung the other way, where, where it's protein at all costs and protein has become the single greatest um, component of, of the diet. I don't think um, even, even at the expense of fat um, where it's just high protein and low everything else, I don't think that is uh, a diet that is prudent in part because the best proteins come with fat. And in our hubris, we think we know better, I would say, than God. Others would say than Mother Nature. Um, but but uh, those protein sources that come with fat should come with the fat. We literally digest the protein better when we eat it with fat, um, the bile acids that get released with fat ingestion uh, facilitate the proteolytic breakdown and digestion of proteins. You do not digest protein as well without fat, in other words. Um, also, the two are more anabolic than just protein alone. So um, I I'm not an advocate of prioritizing fat, um, uh, you know, uh, people being very liberal, adding fat to everything. I don't think that's overly prudent, but at the same time, I'm very opposed to just pushing protein at all costs um, and cutting back everything else. Protein is, it is supposed to come with fat. It does in nature always. There is no exception, zero exception of a natural protein coming just as protein. It always comes with fat. Well, who do we think we are to, to pull those two apart? So I think fat should come with protein. As much as I'm an advocate of prioritizing protein, don't fear the fat that comes with it. And that's kind of my third rule. And would that be like the difference between having a lean chicken breast and maybe like a ribeye? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. And that's why I'm not an advocate of chicken. I think chicken, our obsession with chicken has become, it is one of the bigger shifts in the modern human diet. Mm -hmm. A hundred years ago, we ate very little chicken. And that has become now the single most common source of animal protein in the diet by far. Nothing's even close wow. to how much chicken we eat. And I think that's wrong. We used to keep chickens around for their eggs, which is a one-to-one -one mix of protein to fat, right. kind of like a fatty cut of beef. Well, that's what we should do. That's what we should get back to in my mind. Yeah. And, um, I, I noticed you mentioned something you talked about in the book a little bit about, um, white adipose tissue 
and yeah. brown NF hostage. I thought that would be a cool thing to talk about. Um, and it's relation with cold therapy, right? Yeah. 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 So most people, uh, wouldn't even know that there are these two different, very, very different types of fat we have on the body. White fat is the majority of the fat that we have overwhelmingly, you know, on the average individual, the white adipose tissue or the white fat would be well over 90%, 95 plus percent of the fat that we have. And it is very white. When you actually remove it from the body, it's very white because it's just fat and, and fat, these, these plain triglycerides, I mean, it almost looks like a little ball of squishy coconut oil. I mean, it's very white. Um, in contrast, the brown adipose tissue, which humans typically have um, in this thoracic space is very brown because it's enriched with mitochondria, the, the fat burning part of the cell, which has a reddish brown color. And there's so much of it that these fat cells are very brown when you remove them. Interestingly, particularly in humans, because so much of our fat is subcutaneous or the fat right below our skin, that fat has the potential to kind of act like brown fat. It doesn't become brown fat per se. It becomes what we call beige fat. It does get a little darker. It will have a little more mitochondria, but nothing as far as the actual brown fat cells. But indeed, they have a much higher metabolic rate, which is kind of the purpose of the brown fat. Brown fat cells exist to burn fat and make a lot of heat, whereas white fat cells exist to store fat and thus have a very low metabolic rate, about a tenth that of the brown fat cells. But when insulin goes down and ketones are up, we've published two papers on this topic, another one about to come out, um, metabolic rate goes up a lot in the white fat cells by about two or three times. And cold therapy, when you are lowering the body temperature for a few minutes, um, and, and that takes some time in, in, in immersion, there's no substitute for immersion. A cold shower is fine. Um, and I think it same. can be helped. It is not the same. Yeah. No. Um, and, and so the actual immersion in cold against the skin will activate the brown fat and not only the brown fat here, but also stimulate those white fat cells to start to shift um, into behaving more like brown fat cells or beige, as we call them. I wanted to ask about cold therapy because I actually recently put a cold plunger in my, in, in my house and I've been using it like almost every day. And it's, uh, like you know, I, I'll tell you, Brian, I'm actually jealous. So yeah. I've been trying, I've been talking to the athletic training facility here on campus. Cause I know a lot of these guys and, um, there are so many hurdles to me getting in to use their ice bath, that I've just not been able to do it. Like I can only go and the athletes aren't there and they got to socially distance and, oh, okay. you know, you gotta be masked up. And I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to do all that stuff. And I also don't want to be sitting in an ice bath with like a 300 pound lineman <laughs> on the football team, you know, just tell him you're the kicker. He won't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm the scrawny one. On the team. <laughs> Um, well, I will say you can <laughs> more and more companies are coming out with, with these plungers and you can get one for not a crazy amount of money. And I will say it is like, not only just like, it's just, it, it's therapeutic. I really think like if you just like, it's a game changer. If people are like, not that I'm like clinically depressed or anything, but it just makes you feel so good. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and so do you keep it outside? So I don't, I have a room. It's like sort of off the house. It's, 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 um, it's a sunroom. Kind of like almost. a covered pat. Okay, okay. Yeah. Like a covered patio. Yeah, exactly. It's covered, but it's you closed could, in. It's closed in. You could, you could, you could have, I could have this outside if I wanted to, but I'm in Chicago. And, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. so yeah. And, and, um, 
filters the water. I mean, this one's really, I mean, I, I splurged on this one, but it filters the water. Uh, you don't have to keep refilling it. I mean, it's great. I mean, yeah, yeah. No kidding. Um, but I recommend, I mean, you, you won't, yeah, I'm not a coffee drinker, but you don't need coffee anymore. If you start, <laughs> start, uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. I'm not either. I'm not a coffee drinker either, but I I'm so interested in, in really leaning into this. I'm going to look into it. I'm enough. I, I'm enough yes. of an influencer now. That I'm just going to get someone to send me one. For yeah. Goodness sakes. <laughs> for sure. No, for sure. You should work that. I'll, I'll try. Yeah, I'm going to work it, it. It really is a game changer. Um, okay. We got off a little bit, but I just was curious about that. Um, why don't we touch a little bit about, um, well, I was thinking salt, salt and insulin mm. resistance. I, I think salt has like a, this, a uh, sort of a bad name to it. You know, these low salt diets, just like the low fat sort of trend that came around, but a lot of this stuff is sort of, is sort of going by the wayside. What are your thoughts on salt? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's bonkers. Uh, so the obsession on salt is partly born from old studies that looked at something called the DASH diet, the dietary approach, or I think approach to stop hypertension. Mm. And, 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 and in these studies, they found that, you know, you, you follow the DASH diet, which is a low salt diet, and indeed blood pressure drops pretty well and, and meaningfully. However, what these clowns don't want to admit is that while the DASH diet is, yes, a low-salt diet, it's also low in refined carbohydrates. Mm. Well, they don't want to acknowledge that. But the fact of the matter is insulin is a water-retaining hormone. Among its many, many effects throughout the entire body, its effects indirectly at the kidney are to tell the kidney to retain salt and retain water. And, and, and so people kind of mix these up. Uh, what's interesting is that you, if you can put someone on a low carb diet, like, like we've done, and we published a paper a few years ago, just low carb, they can eat as much salt as they want. Blood pressure just plummets mm. and studies that have explicitly just teased out the salt alone, not the low carb or the low refined carb, which is part of the dash diet, which is a confounding variable. When you just control the salt, blood pressure drops like one or two points. Mm. It's meaningless. It's totally, utterly meaningless. The tragedy in our low salt obsession is that the more and more you cut salt in the diet, the higher the insulin gets because insulin is a water retaining hormone and a salt retaining mm. hormone. And because salt is a molecule that is so essential for life, as you start cutting it in your diet, well, then the body becomes all the more desperate to hold on to what it's got. And so insulin climbs in order to try to keep that in. And as insulin stays high, you become insulin resistant. There are actual human clinical interventional studies that have proven this. So this isn't even correlation slash coincidence. This is causality. The more someone is cutting salt, the more likely that they are becoming more and more insulin resistant. Ironically, all in an effort to try to hold on to the salt that they do have. The body's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, it's more complicated than people want to admit, unfortunately. Yeah. So what would you recommend? I mean, I'm always thinking about, you know, I think about, not I think about salt all the time, but I, I do put like a good quality Redmond salt on, on all my meats and fishes and things like that. But is that enough? You know, that's, yeah, the that's thing. a, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, the, the guy who would ask, I encourage anyone to go see what James D. Nicolantonio has said about this. Right. I don't know a specific amount. My view on it is salt until you're satisfied, basically. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm very liberal with salt. Um, I add it, I add it uh, of course, very liberally on any meat that I'm eating. 
Um, I added, uh, I have a little low carb meal replacement shake that I helped formulate. Um, And anyone, anyone who wants to learn, go to get health, H-L-T-H, gethealth.com to learn more. I always, as much as we put Redmond salt in there already, I always add more. I just like things to be a little salty and my blood pressure has never been a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I know there's a lot of companies coming out now where, you know, like Rob Wolf's company and things like that, where you can right. add it to liquids and things like that. Um, yep. why don't we touch a little bit on, on, uh, a hormone called leptin. I'm curious. Cause you know, you talk about hunger and weight loss. I think they, they sort of go hand in hand. If you can sort of control, uh, your appetite, obviously that can control, um, your weight loss goals. So what role, uh, does leptin play? Yeah. Yeah. So leptin is undeniably important when it comes to body weight regulation, um, but not necessarily in the way people think. So first of all, leptin is a hormone um, that, that does promote satiety in, in the hypothalamus, the kind of the hunger appetite center. And that's, that's its most famous effect. Um, But that is not, I would say that's not why the, the, this individual or the organism starts to gain so much fat, because even if you calorie clamp them, they still get fatter than their normal in, uh, leptin litter mates. You know, when we're talking about rodents, which is the, you know, an ideal model, just because leptin deficiencies in humans are so uncommon. Um, but what people don't appreciate is that uh, leptin is a powerful inhibitor of insulin release, that when leptin goes up, it inhibits insulin production. And so thus in the absence of leptin, to quote one of the scientists who studied this years ago, I think his name was Jeff Friedman. He said, insulin goes through the roof in these animals that they're even when you're controlling for their diet, they have chronically very high levels of insulin. And of course, that's going to promote fat gain substantially. Leptin isn't going to promote fat gain or, or blocking necessarily. It will certainly have a, an appetite regulator regulating effect, but so too does insulin. Mm-hmm. Insulin regulates appetite itself. And as you become more and more insulin resistant because of the flooding of the body with insulin, insulin is enabled to regulate appetite as well. So as important as leptin is, uh, it's no surprise. I'm sure for everyone listening, it's like they can roll their eyes and say, oh man, of course, Ben took it back to insulin only because it's justified <laughs> everybody. You know, that's why I'm bringing it back to insulin that you cannot really understand an obese model or an, an overweight organism with promoting fat gain, unless you understand insulin, any other signal is just kind of a, a secondary input and insulin is going to be the main signal. Now, I know you've talked about this um, on a few other podcasts uh, regarding the difference between, you know, we're all caught up in what our fasting glucose glucose is, and we're sort of uh, shunning or not measuring our fasting insulin, but it really should be the other way around, right? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I, I consider one of the tragedies of modern medicine um, is that our, we have a, such a, an obsession with glucose um, when our obsession should be with insulin especially now that it is so measurable, Mm -hmm. but of course, still, unfortunately, much harder to measure than glucose. And that's why glucose is going to be hard to, to kind of kick out of that primary position. It thinks it's the hero, but it's actually the sidekick in this story. Insulin's the the main character here, but it's just hard to measure insulin. You know, if you and I want to know what our insulin levels are, we got to go draw blood and Mm -hmm. that blood's that's got to go to the lab. And then the doctor's office will let us know what the results are. There is no rapid, let alone real time way to measure insulin like there is glucose. I'm, you know, I'm wearing a continuous glucose monitor um, through levels. 
uh, levels health. And, and I can know what my glucose levels are anytime. It's just scientifically so much easier to measure glucose. And there are so many groups around the world trying to get real-time measurements of insulin. Yeah, I would imagine it's there are be. some very smart people, yeah. but it's 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 so complicated. Hmm. It's so hard to do that to be frank, I don't see it happening within the next five years. I think it's five to ten years out before we get that kind of technology. So what are some of the uh maybe measurements that people should go that you know, obviously now with like you know, these lab corps and things, you can go walk yeah. in labs and get what what are some of uh, maybe uh, the top ones that individuals can just do on their own along, you know, other than obviously fasting insulin, was there anything else that people should keep an eye on? Yeah. Yeah. But let me just beat that drum one more time. If someone can get in and get their insulin measured, if, if it's fasting and your insulin is less than six microunits per mil, that's really, really good. You're doing great. If it's under 10, you're probably doing fine as well. Mm -hmm. And then as it gets up into the teens, then that's kind of a warning. And if it's up into the twenties and it isn't some people red light, you got to make some changes. However, the problem with insulin is like most hormones, it has a rhythm to it. And so it's possible that someone's come in and they've measured their insulin at the peak, you right. know, the perfectly wrong time. There's no way to predict that, unfortunately. Well, then all the more reason to lean on a different marker, which is the triglyceride to HDL yeah. ratio. Take yeah. your fasting triglycerides and divide it by your HDL cholesterol. And that, that is a surprisingly accurate predictor of insulin resistance. And if that triglyceride to HDL ratio is less than 1.5, then you're doing really good. I just did mine actually. <laughs> I was pulling that out, I was, pull that yeah. out, man. Yeah, here it is. I was 0.45. Oh, you dynamite. Okay. You're doing great. That cold bath, that cold bath is working. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, Cause I keep hearing that come up and I was like, Oh, I just got some blood work. It's interesting thing. My blood work is across the board, I think solid, I'm not going to go through everything, but the one thing that it, it just spikes is the fasting glucose for some reason. It, like it was 107. And I, um, I don't know if that's physiological insulin, you know, but that, that's a totally different thing, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. So you know what? So once upon a time that would have been considered a normal number. Did you right. know that? Uh, so it, over the years, what was what's been considered a normal glucose level has been pushed down, down further, further, further. I don't know the reason for this, the cynical reason. And I admit the older I get, the more cynical I'm becoming. Mm -hmm. I think by, by having a stricter, uh, more strict glucose cutoff, it's a great way to put people on medications earlier. Right. Because because someone might say to you, Brian, you're you're pre-diabetic. We got to put you on metformin here. <laughs> I'd be like, it's it basically. I know it's yeah, cynical, yeah. but it's a really good way to sell more drugs. No doubt. And and so you tell me your glucose is 107, and that your insulin's good, your triglyceride to ratio is good. I'd say you're fine, man. Right. Uh, I don't think there's any reason to be worried. But also, if you had done some cold therapy earlier that day, for example, that's a stress on the system. Now it's a therapeutic stress, but any stress is associated with at least some acute increase in glucose. There's no way around it. Same goes with exercise. Same goes with a sauna. If it's a stress on the system, glucose will climb for a time. Or you had a bad night of sleep, which actually goes through the same mechanisms that the cold there and stress uh, does with sauna and et cetera. Mm. But nevertheless, there are so many variables that can play into just manipulating your glucose levels, even for just a few hours at a time, that if you're all, all your other numbers are good, then you're, you're solid in my view. What about measuring ketones? Is this something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think ketones are helpful 
only, um, well, multiple reasons, but one reason is that if you have detectable levels of ketones, then you, your insulin level is low hmm. um, because insulin inhibits ketogenesis so, so powerfully that if you're making ketones, that is an inverse indicator, basically, or it's, it's proof positive that your insulin is low. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, regarding, uh, fasting glucose, there's a few people that have told me in the low carb space that, you know, and I'm not like, I don't necessarily count carbs, but I'm, I know it's very low and I've been doing it for a while. They said maybe perhaps having day, a day of more, of higher carb day, um, just to, I don't know, just to get the body used to using maybe different fuel sources, you know, I don't know your, your thought mm -hmm, on that. Mm -hmm. I know like, uh, you know, Dr. Saladino, uh, has started to implement days of higher carbs along with his carnivore, you know, ish diet. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so I don't know of any published research on that. Okay. And so I always want to be careful because, you know, I'm the PhD here and, you know, I, I want to rely on data all the time. So I'm unaware of any data that have been published on that topic. Okay. However, However, um, there is certainly something to be said for, I don't want to say it that way. Um, there's no doubt that by, if you eat carbs from time to time, you do, I, I have to say this, although I, re, I regret that people will misunderstand it perhaps a little bit. Um, if you want to maintain the most, the, the highest level of metabolic flexibility, which is the ability to shift between carbs and fats very readily, then you would want to have carbs from time to time. Now, someone would hear me say that and say, oh, done, I'm in. I want maximal me metabolic flexibility. Metabolic flexibility only matters if you are eating carbs from time to time. For example, if someone um, doesn't eat carbs for 48 hours, their, their, their pancreas stops making insulin. Not, be, not because it's sick or anything. It, it just is, it's almost as if the pancreas is sampling the blood thinking, oh, we're not getting any glucose spikes anymore. And we got all this insulin that we've made and have, we, we're holding it here packaged, ready to go. <laughs> That's something called the first phase of insulin. Like if you and I were to go and eat a bagel, if we were to measure our insulin kind of five minutes at a time, it would go like this and like that. There's two phases. The first phase is the release of all the insulin the pancreas already has. The second phase is the release of all the insulin it starts making from scratch. So it's basically like this factory with a warehouse and the warehouse is holding all the pre-made insulin and the factory is ready to be flicked on the moment it needs to, to start making more insulin, but it takes a you know, little bit of time for it to do so. If you, um, if you cut your carbs, even if you just fast for 24 hours, not even low carb, you get rid of the warehouse. You, you will get rid of the, the, the pancreas is so determined to be efficient that it's looking at all this insulin and just 16 or 18 hours into a fast, it basically starts to say, ah, it looks like we don't need this after all. Let's start just tearing down the boxes and throw all the insulin away. And it will literally break the insulin back down into its component amino acids. Thus, if you and I were then to go eat a bagel after having fasted for 24 hours, not to mention been on a low carb ketogenic diet for several weeks, we lose the first phase. And so we eat that bagel. Now our glucose has a little longer time to get higher because it's waiting for the factory to start making new insulin. <laughs> we still bring it back down, but it took a little longer. In contrast, 
we eat that bagel and you and I eat another bagel about six hours later after everything is settled back down, our glucose won't go as high. It'll go up and it'll come down in a much more expected pattern because the beta cells now we're thinking, ah, we're going to start doing this again. All right, let's fill the warehouse again with all the preformed insulin. So what happens is when you adhere to a low carb diet or you just fast for 24 hours, you lose the first phase of insulin release and thus become a little more glucose intolerant, not Mm -hmm. insulin resistant. Brian, anyone who tells you that a low carb diet causes insulin resistance, you laugh in their face. That is demonstrably false. They do not become insulin resistant, even physiological insulin resistant. People who say that don't know the hell they're talking about. That's not true. They become glucose intolerant, which is not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it's acute. It's corrected. The one time you eat some carbs, eat carbs again a few hours later, and everything's as right as it ever was, even better than ever. So there's something to be said. If someone wants to be metabolically flexible and eat carbs from time to time and have it have minimal effect, and if you're a honey lover, then you would want to do that, well, then fine. If, however, you're all in and you are um, controlling your insulin and having ketones to help with your migraine headaches or your seizures or you want to get off your type 2 diabetes medication, then there's no reason to cycle out of a low-carb diet and have deliberate periods of eating carbs. That's just, that's a liberty that those that are already metabolically healthy can, can afford to take. But I'm not saying there's no justification for it, Brian. Again, if someone's singular goal is to have maximal metabolic flexibility, then you do want to put carbs in there. Most people nowadays are metabolically inflexible, stuck in the sugar burning mode, the carb burning or glucose burning because their insulin is chronically elevated and insulin is what dictates which fuel you're using. In contrast, people that have been adhering to a ketogenic diet for a prolonged period, they are metabolically inflexible kind of in the other way. They're stuck in fat burning, if you will. Now I say stuck, but I lose that term loosely because to get out of it, all they got to do is eat some carbs and they're right back to being metabolically flexible. What would you say to someone that's, as majority of people I would say are, that are sort of stuck in this glucose burning mode, the sugar burning yeah. mode to get, to get out of that and get into more of a fat burning mode? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it is all about lowering insulin. That is literally the reason why they're stuck in sugar burning. It's because if you're insulin resistant, insulin resistance is and always is a state of elevated insulin. And that's why when people want to invoke physiological insulin resistance in the context of a low-carb diet, I laugh in their face and I invite you to do the same, Brian. Let's not be polite about it. It's because those are low insulin states and you cannot have insulin resistance without elevated insulin. And that's the problem. The people that are metabolically inflexible, stuck in sugar burning, um, it's because their insulin is chronically elevated. Well, start fasting, start uh, adopting a low-carb or controlled-carb diet. The insulin will come down. And now you're burning fat. What, what are some good tips I noticed in your book? And I'm curious your thoughts. And obviously if it's in the book, you obviously agree with it to some degree is apple cider vinegar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So I put it in there. Yeah. So I yeah, definitely yeah, I figured, yeah. Embrace well, it. You know, you, yeah. You, yeah. Um, but I did not yeah. have a ghost writer just for the record. <laughs> well, you know, the, although, you know, it's interesting because some people come out with books and then, you know, you change your thoughts. I'm oh, sure you've for had, sure. right. For you sure. Know, I'm sure you've yeah, had. yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. There, there are indeed some things in the book that if I do a second edition, I'd like to update, but that's mm-hmm. not one of them. So there's no question apple cider vinegar, like take two tablespoons a day helps improve insulin sensitivity, let alone taking a shot of it. Um, right when you're about to eat your starchy, most starchy or sugary snack or meal of the so day. Before, before. 
Yep. Yeah. Before. Yep. Yeah. It'll absolutely bring down the glucose and the insulin. There's just something about it. Um, altering glucose digestion and absorption, um, improving insulin sensitivity, which it does in, uh, in, in increasing mitochondrial biogenesis, like literally stimulating the synthesis of new mitochondria. I, uh, to me, apple cider vinegar, um, that's kind of like what, what honey is to Paul Saladino, apple cider vinegar is to me, you know, he loves his honey and I, I'm a pretty big advocate of apple cider vinegar. Um, uh, part of it is born from my affection for fermenting, which, which is ironic because I don't drink alcohol and that's like one of the most popular fermented things. <laughs> um, but, but I'm a, I'm a fan of fermenting and I think that, um, there's, we've lost something in that. Uh, as much as there are people who kind of espouse these kind of primal eating, well, what about fermenting? Um, that was a part of, a, of, of an ancient diet that when our ancestors had carbohydrates and they wanted to preserve them to any degree, mm -hmm. they would ferment these because they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have ways of preserving the food. And when you ferment a food or, or dairy, um, the bacteria are eating the sugars from that. And so then what we end up eating has a much lower sugar starch content than it did before. At the same time, when bacteria ferment, they're different from our cells. When we ferment, they make um, short chain fatty acids, whereas we make uh, you know, something like lactate. They make short chain fats and short chain fats are vinegar among them, among a couple others, but vinegar is a fat. It is a, fat, a fatty acid. It is the shortest of all the fats in, uh, in uh, possible. Hmm. And, and they're tart short, these short chain fats have a very tart flavor, which I love. I love you, the tartness. I'm sorry. Do you, do you food. ferment your own foods or do you buy fermented food? Yeah. So I, for a time, um, we would ferment our own dairy. I liked making, um, uh, kefir for the kids, especially, and I would drink it too. And I would add some like whole strawberries into it and blend it up as smoothies for the kids. And they loved it. Hmm. We just got out of the habit because I got too busy and it, you got to, these little kind of dairy fermenting cultures, you got to treat them like little babies almost, right. you know, they need a lot of attention. So no, I'm not committed enough to do my own fermenting, but I like to buy unfiltered raw apple cider vinegar. Same goes with sauerkraut, unpasteurized, unfiltered sauerkraut and an unsweetened whole fat kefir uh, or, or this kind of fermented dairy. Um, and Have the same you... yogurt is a fermented dairy too, of course. Yeah. And I was just going to say, I know we're getting up to it here, but I could probably talk for, <laughs> maybe we'll do a part two. And in the, yeah. and, and in the part two, I want to hear about your cold plunging. <laughs> My cold plunging. Yeah. You said you were going to get into it. So maybe well, I want, yeah, I want to, I, okay. you know, I just gotta, what I need you to do is send me your contact at that company. And I'm going to okay. say, Hey, I'm a little bit of an influencer. And I'll, <laughs> I'll hey, do a real. It never or hurts to ask. Right. Well, I'm going to try. Because I'm a professor, so I can't afford a cold bath. They don't pay me that much. <laughs> you know, Brad Kearns, you know, Brad Kearns, he does mm -hmm. a, uh, he's a buddy of mine in the podcasting world, but he does a video on how he just has his own homemade one. And it's, you know, you could just go to Home Depot and make your own and, you know, it's not, it's not a bad way to go. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. No kidding. You know, start that way. Um, so yeah, my, my thought hey, was that when you do it, do you go yeah. all the way, you know, do you go over your head sometimes and hold your breath for a few seconds or is it just kind of up to your neck? Yeah. So you're right. I go up to my neck. Like I did it last night. I go up to my neck for about, you know, two to three minutes. And then the last maybe 10, 15 seconds I'll dunk. Okay. And then that's it. You're done. That's it. You get out towel off and try to <laughs> unthaw. Unthaw. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't like to jump right into a, into like a warm shower. I like to just settle for a little bit and then, 
and then I'll go into the warmth. Um, oh, love it, man. Love it. It's the, it's the cheapest hack, easiest hack. I yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to just go into those to hell with those 300 pound linemen. I'm going to say, Hey, move over. And they'll say, who are you? And I'll say, I'm Dr. Bickman, you little schmuck. Make room. <laughs> yeah. You don't I'm... know who I am. <laughs> um, a few more questions and then we'll finish up. Uh, yeah. Dairy thoughts on dairy. Um, I've actually been, I have a farm, not that close, but 45 minutes away that I got some raw dairy from, but I guess what's your overall writing thought on dairy and, and does it, does it, uh, raise insulin quite a bit or no? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It does increase insulin. Um, my view now, I don't mean to then suggest that it's something to be strictly avoided. Um, I am an advocate of actually raw dairy. If that's a healthy cow, that's healthy milk. Um, and, uh, I love and, and it. so I'm, 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 an, I'm a fan of that, but always whole milk. Right. That is all we get in the Bickman home. In my home, it's only whole milk. Um, I don't drink a lot of milk only because I look at milk as a food for growth. Right. And, and it's high in all three macronutrients, which is why there's a, you know, a decent insulin spike, but, but nothing like, you know, junk food, like even a piece of bread. Um, uh, but, but it's high in all three macronutrients, which is perfectly formulated to help. So, so that mommy mammal can make baby mammal grow quickly. Well, I'm done growing. Um, um, but, but sometimes I'll drink it. Uh, but mostly it's for the kids. Um, I'm eager for them to drink milk anytime they want. Um, I don't drink it too much, but I do sometimes. Yeah. 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 If you can get raw milk, I've been getting it for the last few months. It's yep. yeah. It's so much better than regular. Um, well, we're getting on in here. What's the best way for people to, I know you mentioned you have the meal replacement, which is H L T H code, right? Health code. Yep. yep. Health code. Yep. That's right. Yeah. And the website is get health. Um, and, and people can see the blog there. I have um, blog and, and video content and then, and get the shake. Anyone who's interested use by all means, use the code Ben 10 B E N one zero to get a 10% off. Um, it, it's a great, I think it's the best meal replacement shake out there. Of course I made it. Um, but I made it because I just didn't think there was a good one out there. Um, uh, so p by all means, everyone go learn more about it. If you guys give it a try, I can practically guarantee you'll love it. Um, and then other than that, uh, I'm mostly active on Instagram, um, frankly, which is funny because when I first got involved in social media a number of years ago, which was totally because I knew I was going to write a book and I wanted to be able to kind of market it myself. Right. I was mostly involved in Twitter and I've come to hate Twitter. Brian, yeah. I don't know how you feel. Every time I engage on Twitter, I regret it. Honestly, yeah. it doesn't even matter what it is. So I only mostly get on Twitter now to follow college uh, football and basketball. <laughs> Actually, it's just college sports now. And then, and then I've kind of shifted to Instagram, which is just a, it's kind of a better medium for me. And I never would have admitted this about even about a year ago, but nevertheless, that's my long-winded way of saying, find me on Instagram. I typically do uh, about one or two videos a week, yeah, always about human nutrition, um, it's nothing kind of me posing, you know, with a peace sign in front of like a steak or something. <laughs> um, it's just, it's just me do kind of doing a little kind of classroom session, usually about a minute. Yeah. And I noticed that. Find me there. Uh, ben Bickman, PhD. Yeah. That and, and or free on well, Instagram, Facebook, but Facebook too. It, it Facebook, publishes on right. Facebook as well. That's right. And then obviously the book, yep. uh, why we get sick. Great book just to use as a reference. And in the back, I love the fact that you, you know, you give action steps and tips, you know, like apple cider vinegar and things like this. And, and, and foods that aren't, um, aren't going to raise insulin. Um, yeah, yeah. In fact, in fact, let's let, I'll make that plug guys, go buy some shake, go buy my book so I can afford to have a cold bath like Brian. <laughs> we'll see if we can get you one and then we'll do, we'll, we'll do a part two. How about that? 
Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. This was fun. In fact, everyone, pardon me if I'm a little cheeky. I guess I'm a little punch drunk this time of day. Brian just brings out the cheekiness in me. <laughs> no, this is great. You know, I've listened to a lot of your interviews and I'm like, how can we make this a little bit different? But I think we've touched on a ton of great information that people can. Yeah, this was, yeah. Yeah, know, there's people, some gems here. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again for reaching out. No, my pleasure. And uh, have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, brother. Hey, Get Lean, Eat Clean Nation. Are you a man between the ages of 40 and 60 years old? looking to lose inches around your waist, have significantly more energy throughout the day, and gain muscle, all while minimizing the risk of injuries? Well, I'm looking for three to five people to work one-on-one with in my Fat Burner Blueprint Signature Program, which I've developed by utilizing my 15 years experience in the health and fitness space. This program is designed specifically for those committed to making serious progress towards their health goals over the next six months. We will focus on sleep, stress, nutrition, meal timing, and building lean muscle. If this sounds like a fit for you, email me at brian at briangrin.com with the subject line blueprint. That's brian at briangrin.com with the subject line blueprint. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.